0: Brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. Today I have for you a bit of a history lesson from Michael Davies. who was writing about things happening in the contemporary church in America in the early 1980s. And he couches this, the state of the church at that time, which will sound eerily familiar to you 40 years later. He couches the discussion. In the state of the church in the 4th century, in the work of St. Athanasius, and how there were bishops who did things that would have gotten them excommunicated and labeled as schismatics. He compares them to Archbishop Lefebvre in our time. Let me know what you think of this when you hear it because this is going to be eye-opening because he's talking about the church in the early 1980s. Not much has changed since then. The Church in Crisis by Michael Davies. On February 27, 1982, an advertisement of what I consider to be historic significance appeared in the Cincinnati Inquirer. It had been inserted by two priests from the Diocese of Covington in Kentucky, Monsignor Edward Mickey and Father Henry Hack. Remember their names. They deserve our gratitude and our admiration. Monsignor Hickey and Father Hack had gone to the expense of inserting an advertisement in a secular newspaper in order to register a protest. They claimed, and I am sure that everyone here would agree with them, that it was, quote, a scandal and a disturbance to the faithful that Father Richard McBrien had been invited to preach at St. Mary's Cathedral in Covington on February 26th. Father Richard McBrien is the chairperson of the theology department at the University of Notre Dame, probably the most prestigious Catholic university in the United States of America. He also happens to be a heretic. Monsignor Hickey and Father Hock did not merely accuse Father McBrien of heresy. They documented their accusation. They listed nine points in which he has publicly rejected the teaching of the Church. I will mention just three of them. He denies the necessity of infant baptism. He denies that our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Sacrament of Orders, and claims that, if necessary, any member of the congregation could celebrate the Eucharist. He denies that the James Martin sin and the use of chemical barriers to being fruitful and multiplying are intrinsically evil. The Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has declared that Dr. Hans Kung can no longer be regarded as a Catholic theologian nor function as such in a teaching role. Pope John Paul II approved this declaration and ordered its publication. On December 7, 1981, Dr. Kung gave a public lecture at the University of Notre Dame. Father McBrien introduced him to the standing-room-only audience as a fellow Catholic theologian. See the Wanderer issue for 14th of January, 1982. The insolent and cynical rejection of the judgment of the sacred congregation was loudly applauded. I can well imagine that the average reader of the Cincinnati Enquirer glanced at the protest of the two courageous priests with amusement, disdain, or perhaps bewilderment. How ridiculous, many of them will have thought, if they bothered to read the advertisement at all— Fancy anyone making a fuss over such trivialities in the closing decades of the 20th century. We are plagued by unemployment, recessions, and rising crime weights. We can travel throughout space, and we may all be destroyed in this Cold War at any time. Who really cares whether infants are baptized or not? If anyone wants to baptize their infants, well, the best of luck to them. If they don't want to, who cares? We care, of course. I am sure that society in general, many of our friends, and sometimes even members of our own families... Think we are rather eccentric, somewhat peculiar because we care. Others would go further. They would call our views extreme, term us fanatics. Does that prove that we are wrong? Of course it doesn't. Cardinal Newman wrote It would seem to be certain that those opinions which are popular will be ever mistaken and dangerous as being popular opinions. Those who serve God faithfully must ever look to be accounted in their generation singular, intemperate, extreme. They are not so. Cardinal Newman was willing to be accounted intemperate and extreme in his own generation because the motivating force of his entire life was what he termed the dogmatic principle which he describes thus. That there is truth then, that there is one truth, that religious error is in itself an immoral nature, that is, its maintainers unless involuntarily such are guilty in maintaining it, that is, to be dreaded, that truth and falsehood are set before us for the trial of our hearts. That our choice is an awful giving forth of lots on which salvation or rejection is inscribed. That before all things it is necessary to hold the Catholic faith. That he would be saved must think and not otherwise. He that would be saved must thus think and not otherwise. This is what the dogmatical principle is about. It is an awesome matter, the one which must preoccupy us more than anything else in life because our eternal destiny depends upon it. It is briefly a question of heaven and hell. The dogmatical principles concerned Newman so deeply because his whole life was centered upon the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fervor of his love for the Son of God shines through every page of his writing, and because Newman loved and cared for our Lord, he loved and cared for the truth, Jesus himself told us that he had come into the world to bear testimony to the truth. Art thou a king, then asked Pilate. Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, that I should give testimony of the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. See the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 37. Every Catholic has a duty to uphold the truth. Each one of us must thus think, and not otherwise, if we wish to be saved. But there are men in the church who have a particular and solemn obligation to uphold and defend the truth in public. These men are known as bishops. St. Paul wrote to his beloved disciple Timothy, had become bishop of Ephesus, and warned him of his responsibilities toward the truth. This admonition has never been improved upon as a summary of the duties of a bishop. It could not be. Quote, I charge thee that before God and Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead, by his coming and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, entreat, rebuke in all patience and doctrine, for there shall be a time when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and will indeed turn away their hearing from the truth, but will be turned into fables. But be thou vigilant, labor in all things, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill thy ministry, be sober. They will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and will indeed turn away their hearing from the truth. They will indeed. They will invite Hans Kung to lecture in Notre Dame University, in Notre Dame which means Our Lady. Hans Kuhn, lecturing at a university dedicated to the mother of incarnate truth. I will not speculate upon the fee they paid him. They will also invite Richard McBrien to preach in St. Mary's Cathedral, Covington, Kentucky, a cathedral dedicated to the mother of incarnate truth. A cathedral. The word is derived from a Greek root meaning chair, for in every cathedral is the cathedra, the chair on which the bishop sits to preach sound doctrine and rebuke error in season and out of season. But there is no bishop in the Diocese of Covington. Is the see vacant? Some of you will be asking. And if you are not then, then you ought to be. Did the bishop know of the invitation issued to Father Richard McBrien, chairperson of the Theology Department of Notre Dame, an evident heretic? How come priests of the diocese had to insert an advertisement in the secular press denouncing his visit? Surely this is the bishop's job. There is indeed a bishop of Covington. The see is not vacant. His name is William A. Hughes. He did indeed know of the invitation issued to Father Richard McBrian, and how did he quote unquote fulfill his ministry? Bishop William A. Hughes of Covington, Kentucky did not reprove, rebuke, or even entreat Father McBrian. He did not protect his flock from Father McBrian. No, he praised Father McBrian. He endorsed him. He approved him. Here is the manner in which he fulfilled his ministry as the successor of the apostles. Bishop Hughes responded to the protest as follows. A man who, like Father McBrien, has been past president of the Catholic Theological Society of the United States of America, surely has the high regard of his peers. In addition, as current chairperson of the Theology Department of Notre Dame University, he is not considered unacceptable to church authorities. Father McBrien's recently published two-volume work, Catholicism, has been widely praised as a special contribution toward helping today's Catholics understand their faith. He is especially adept at relating the influence of Vatican II documents on traditional church teaching. While I wouldn't want to argue with anything the bishop says here, McBrien does indeed have the high regard of his peers, his fellow theologians. So much the worse for them. He is indeed very acceptable to church authorities. So much the worse for them. His two-volume blasphemously misnomered work, Catholicism, has indeed been widely praised. So much the worse for those who praised it. And Father McBrien, who is a heretic, is adept at relating the influence of Vatican II documents on traditional church teaching. Is he indeed? Look at the state of the traditional church teaching in America today, and Father McBrien relates this to the documents of Vatican II. Very interesting. Well, Bishop Hughes says this. If anyone objects, contact him. Don't blame me. The situation I have described is truly scandalous. A successor of the apostles allowing a public heretic to preach in his cathedral and defending him against the well-founded criticisms of zealous priests who are doing what the bishops should have done themselves, making a public stand on behalf of Catholic truth. Is this situation unique? Is Bishop Hughes an isolated case what you would probably call in Texas a maverick prelate? Alas, no. A maverick prelate in the United States today would be one who would refuse to allow Father McBrien to preach in his diocese. The only such prelate I can think of in the United States is Bishop Sullivan of Baton Rouge. I am told on good authority that when the American hierarchy meets Bishop Sullivan is treated as if he is suffering from some form of impairment. Nothing he says is taken seriously. He is considered, in the words of Newman, singular, intemperate, extreme. I could provide hundreds of examples of equally scandalous actions on the part of American bishops, Dutch bishops, French bishops, and English bishops. Let us not imagine that Bishop William Hughes of Covington, Kentucky, or any of those like him are liberal-minded, tolerant men. They do not tolerate heretical theologians because their motto is, live and let live. They don't just tolerate them, they promote them. And they promote them because they approve of them. But there are priests that Bishop Hughes will not tolerate. I have a letter here from him addressed to one of them. The priest in question is a good friend of mine. He has given 50 years of loyal service to the diocese. He is a fine scholar. A new retirement policy for priests of the Diocese of Covington has come into effect, says the bishop. This sounds promising. You have given many years of your life to the diocese, he continues. It's nice to be appreciated. You are certainly eligible for the retirement benefits. This is good news, but the good news ends here. It has been reported to me, says Bishop Hughes, that you still celebrate Mass publicly in the Latin Tridentine form. I do not know if that is true. If it is, it is something that I would have to take into considerations. End quote. Well, there you have it. That is the American Church today. Heresy, yes, the Latin Tridentine Mass, no. Only one offense is now vigorously punished, an accurate observance of our fathers' traditions. Only one offense is now vigorously punished, an accurate observance for Father's traditions. This complaint was not made by my priest friend in Kentucky, who has been ordered to cease celebrating the rite of Mass he was ordained to offer. It was made by St. Basil during the Arian persecution in the 4th century. Yet the situation that I have described is by no means unique. It has happened before, and the Church survived as indeed it must, for Jesus himself has promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Today is the feast of St. Athanasius, described by St. Gregory of Nazianzen as an incomparable prelate, mighty voice of the truth, pillar of the faith, new herald of Christ. There could be no more appropriate day for us to reflect upon the life of St. Athanasius and to discover what we can learn from his example to help us in our efforts to hold the truth. The state of the church during the Arian heresy was even worse than it is now. There are countries such as Poland, Lithuania, and Japan, where, to the best of my knowledge, Catholic orthodoxy is upheld. But in the 4th century, according to St. Rome, the entire world groaned in astonishment to find itself Arian. Arianism was a heresy which first became influential in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. The heresy was not new. It claimed that our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, is not really God in the sense that the Father is God. But in its initial stages, the proponents of the heresy were careful not to make this blasphemy absolutely specific. Ambiguity was their weapon. In his Apologia Pro Viassois, Cardinal Newman noted the manner in which the Arians had drawn up their creeds. Was it not on the principle of using vague, ambiguous language, which to the subscribers would seem to bear a Catholic sense, but which, when worked out in the long run, would prove to be heterodox, says the cardinal. But how had Arius been allowed to initiate and propagate his heresy? Sadly, the answer must be through the weakness of his bishop. Truly, there is nothing new under the sun. Arius was a priest of the great patriarchal see of Alexandria. In the entire church, only the see of Rome was of greater importance. Alexander, the patriarch of Alexandria, now St. Alexander, was guilty of serious weakness in allowing Arius great latitude to express his theories and argue in their defense. Cardinal Newman notes that, quote, The mischief which ensued from his misplaced weakness was considerable when Alexander was eventually persuaded to excommunicate Arius, not least through the influence of St. Athanasius. His secretary at the time, his heretical theories had already spread so far that they could not be checked. I will not attempt to recount the history of Arianism in any detail. I have already provided the necessary facts in Appendix 1 to my book, Apologia Pro Marcel Lefebvre. Arius was condemned by the Council of Nicaea in 325, but the movement did not disappear, it simply went underground, as did modernism after its condemnation by Pope St. Pius X. It reemerged with a new leader, Eusebius of Nicomedea. When reading the history of Arianism, one finds references to a Eusebian doctrine or a Eusebian formula. This means an Arian doctrine or an Arian formula expressed in cunningly ambiguous terms. Eusebius was far too shrewd to attempt any direct reversal of what had been decreed at Nicaea. The new policy was to propose, in place of its rigid and unmistakable definition, new formula purposely vague and all-embracing, which Catholics could interpret in a traditional sense, and the Arians in an Arian sense, so the Arians would be able to remain within the Church. Eusebius was able to win the support of the Emperor Constantine, and after his death in 337, of his son, Emperor Constantius II. The support of the Emperor was decisive. Catholic bishops were deposed and replaced by Arians. By this time, Athanasius himself had become bishop of Alexandria. He, more than any other individual, upheld the teaching of the Council of Nicaea that Jesus Christ was divine, true God, true man, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Athanasius had been the chief force at the Great Council. It was the chief object of Eusebius to displace him from the see of Alexandria. Repeatedly, he was accused to the emperor of serious crimes. One peak-packed council after another declared him deposed. These were, of course, regional councils of bishops and not general councils of the church. Twice the emperor replaced him with an Arian, five times he was exiled, and at one time, with a price on his head, he spent seven years lost from sight in the deserts to the south of Egypt. How appropriate is the epistle for today's feast? Do you remember Cardinal Newman's warning, which I quoted a few minutes ago, that those who uphold the truth will always be in a minority, and that they will be rejected by the compliant, self-assured majority? Let me quote a few sentences from the epistle for today's feast. In all things we suffer tribulations, but we are not distressed. We are straitened, but we are not destitute. We suffer persecutions, but are not forsaken. We are cast down, but we perish not. We suffer persecution, but we are not forsaken. We are cast down, but we perish not. What words of inspiration, what words of comfort to traditional Catholics in this present time of tribulation, In choosing this epistle for the feast of St. Athanasius, the Church clearly intended to apply these words to the great saint himself, the father of orthodoxy, as he is rightly termed. It would not be true to say that St. Athanasius was the only bishop in the world who upheld the divinity of our Lord. He had the support of a few other courageous bishops, such as St. Hilary, but there can be no doubt that he was in the primary instrument utilized by God for the defeat of Arianism, Athanasius Contra Mundum, Athanasius, against the world. The tribute is well justified. Now, what was the basis of the defense of orthodoxy made by St. Athanasius? It was an appeal to tradition. What father's can was signed to your phrase was a challenge he put to his Aryan opponents. His attitude was that of every true Catholic to doctrinal novelties, an attitude well summarized by Cardinal Newman when he wrote, quote, Blessed be God, We have not to find the truth, it is put into our hands. We have but to commit it to our hearts and to preserve it inviolate, and to deliver it over to our posterity. This, then, is the meaning of St. Paul's injunction in the text given at the time when truth was first published. Keep that which is committed to thy trust, or rather, keep the deposit. Turn away from those profane emptinesses, which pretenders to philosophy and science bring forward against it. Do not be moved by them. Do not alter your creed for them, for the end of such men is error. But, as I have said, the bishops as a whole failed miserably and scandalously in their sacred duty of preserving and handing on the deposit of faith during the Arian heresy. St. Gregory of Nazianzin remarked that, but for a very few, all temporized, only differing from each other in this, that some succumbed earlier and others later. Some were the foremost champions and leaders in the impiety, and others joined the second rank of battle, being overcome by fear or by interest, or by flattery, or what was the most excusable, by their own ignorance. St. Gregory's description could be applied without changing a word to the English bishops during the Protestant Reformation. St. John Fisher was the sole heroic and honorable exception. St. Gregory's description could also be applied without changing a word to the bishops in many countries today, not least in the U.S. In an article in the December 1981 Homiletic and Pastoral Review, the leading journal for priests in America, One parish priest testified from his personal knowledge that some American dioceses, I would say most American dioceses, are dominated by theological modernism. Some of the bishops are themselves willingly modernists. The true leanings of the others are harder to discern. They have appointed modernists to all or most of the key positions. They have voiced public praise and support for these officials. They have never, at least publicly, attempted to correct their errors. In about the year 372, St. Basil wrote, Religious people keep silence, but every blaspheming tongue is let loose. Sacred things are profaned. Those of the lady who are sound in faith avoid the places of worship as schools of impiety and raise their hands in solitude with groans and tears to the Lord in heaven. Do we need to change one word of this description to de- describe the state of the church in so many parts of the Catholic world today? In my own case, I lived a two-minute walk from a Catholic church where I served the early Mass each day for many years. That church is very dear to me, not least for the memories it contains of the saintly priest who was such an inspiration to me. But now the tabernacle has been removed from the high altar. Women distribute communion in the hand to a standing congregation. Ludicrous ditties replace the Gregorian chant that I once knew. And I am told that recently, as a special surprise, the congregation sang Happy Birthday to the new pastor during the Mass. Each Sunday now I make a long journey across London by public transport to this chapel which the Society of St. Pius X has just purchased. This causes me no particular hardship, but there are elderly and infirm people who make even longer journeys. There are even those who are crippled and blind, but they feel that they must avoid their parish churches as places of impiety. Did not Pope John Paul II feel it necessary to apologize to us for this impiety in his letter, Dominiche Cana, dated 24th of February, 1980? He begged forgiveness in his own name and that of the entire episcopate for everything in the application of a liturgical reform which, quote, may have caused scandal and disturbance concerning the veneration due to this great sacrament, end quote. We must admire the honesty and humility of the Pope in making this astonishing apology. Indeed, it must be one of the most astonishing statements ever made by a Pope in the entire history of the Church. But what notice have the bishops of the U.S. taken of him? None at all. Absolutely none at all. And what has the Pope done about the fact that the American bishops have defied him? Absolutely nothing. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of Dame Edith Cavell, an English nurse executed by the Germans during the First World War. She is remembered not only for her courage and her patriotism, but for words which even surpass these virtues. Patriotism is not enough. I feel that we must say to the Pope, with all the respect and veneration due to the successor of St. Peter, apologies are not enough. Admonitions and exhortations are not enough. What we want is some action, and the most urgent action at present is the removal of the weak or heretical bishops who are leading the Catholic Church in the United States into schism. In the issue of homiletic and pastoral review, which I have just mentioned, the editor, Father Kenneth Baker S.J., for whose courage and integrity I have great admiration, expressed the fear that a a quote-unquote American church separated and independent of Rome is just around the corner. I disagree with Father Baker. I don't think that an American church schismatic in nature is just around the corner. I think that it's here already. What we are supposed to call bishops who allow heretics in their dioceses then praise and defend them against the protests of the outraged faithful. I can't think of a better word than schismatic to describe them. I also think that St. Gregory of Nazian's Phrase foremost champions and leaders in the impiety is also very applicable. I understand that here in Texas you have some rather more forceful expressions to describe the bishops you are afflicted with today, but the ones I have heard appear more suitable for private conversation. One advantage of our present situation over the handful of Catholics during the Aryan heresy is that at least we are not subjected to physical persecution in most cases. There have, of course, been examples of physical harassment, Father Yves Normandin was locked out of his church. Have you read his story? If you haven't, you ought to. He is one of the greatest fighters for orthodoxy in the church today. What then are the weapons used today against those who remain faithful tradition? Bishop Rudolf Graber of Regensburg in Germany has given us the answer. Quote, What happened over 1,600 years ago is repeating itself today, but with two or three differences. Alexandria is today the whole universal church, the stability of which is being shaken, and what was undertaken at that time by means of physical force and cruelty is now being transferred to a different level, exiles replaced by the banishment and the silence of being ignored, killing by assassination of a character, End quote. And it is not simply such traditional priests in these among us here tonight who suffer this form of persecution. There are others equally committed to orthodoxy who are attempting to uphold truth with the official structures of the conciliar church. But much as I respect and admire them, I fear they are fighting a losing battle. They can do no more than achieve a holding operation. They are being ruthlessly and systematically purged. I know some of them. I could give you names. So could Father Bolduc. This type of pastor can be called a papalist priest. One of them wrote the article in the Homiletic, which I've already cited several times. This is what he has to say about those like himself. Quote, In his diocesan context, the papalist priest is a pariah, the butt of obloquy of condescending pity, barred from any positions of influence, sent away to small enclaves, usually isolated rural places where he can do the least quote-unquote damage, end quote. Barred from any position of influence, this is the terrible truth. A priest who displays the least inclination for orthodoxy has no hope of becoming a bishop in the American church today, so the situation is going to get worse and worse. I apologize for the gloomy prediction, but I don't think anyone here would want to challenge it, In fact, I don't think it can be challenged. And if we start thinking about the priests who are emerging from American seminaries today, well, let's not think about it. It's too depressing. I have not yet spoken to you about Pope Liberius, whose pontificate lasted from 325 to 366. He has the unenviable distinction of being the first pope in the history of the church not to be recognized as a saint. Initially, the Pope defended Athanasius and defended our Lord's divinity with great courage, but he was subjected to great pressure and eventually gave way, subscribing to the excommunication of St. Athanasius and signing an ambiguous formula which could be interpreted in an Arian sense. The tragic fall of Pope Liberius is described in the strongest of terms in Butler's Lives of the Saints. the fall of so great a prelate and so illustrious a confessor is a terrifying example of human weakness, which no one can call to mind without trembling for himself. End quote. How then did St. Athanasius uphold the true faith against, Ar- against the Arian error? The emperor was against him, almost all the bishops were against him, and even the pope failed to support him, going as far as to excommunicate him. Cardinal Newman has no doubt about the answer. St. Athanasius was the instrument used to preserve the apostolic faith and his support came largely from the laity. Not all the laity, many, perhaps most, also compromised, but a large number remained true to the faith they had received at their baptism. They were not learned men and women. They were not theologians, but they knew what bishops and priests were telling them to believe was contrary to the traditional faith. In many cases, and this is truly astonishing, contrary to what those very bishops and priests had taught them in the early days. St. Athanasius and his flock constituted a small minority, persecuted minority, despised minority, and it appeared for many years a minority without hope. But as you say in America, they hung in there. Eventually, there was a Catholic emperor and a strong pope. Orthodoxy was restored. Truth flourished. The church was saved. Many of them didn't live to see this happy day. St. Athanasius did not but he knew that it would come because our Lord had promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. What then can we learn from the battle waged against heresy by the great saint whose feast we celebrate today? When we are told that we are arrogant or even crazy because we claim to be right and most of the bishops and clergy wrong, that this could not possibly be the case, we can reply that not only is it possible, but that it has happened before. We can learn from the story of Saint Athanasius that Catholics who remain faithful to the truth may have to worship outside the official churches, and that such Catholics may have to look for truly Catholic teaching, leadership, and inspiration, not to their parish priest, not to their diocesan bishop, not to the bishops of their country as a body, or even to the bishops of the world. They may have to look to one solitary and heroic bishop who has been repudiated by his fellow bishops, and perhaps even by the Pope himself. Such a bishop may have to disregard the normal rules of canon law. St. Athanasius did. He even ordained in the dioceses of other bishops to ensure that there would still be orthodox priests in the church to teach the faith, celebrate mass, and administer the other sacraments. Such was his standing that it was said that to be in communion with St. Athanasius was in itself the truest test of orthodoxy. And how would we recognize that this solitary bishop was right even if he appeared to be in opposition to all the other bishops of the world, and even the pope himself? The answer is that they would recognize in his teaching what the faithful of the fourth century recognized in the teaching of St. Athanasius, the one true faith into which they had been baptized. In no sense whatsoever can such fidelity to tradition be compared to the Protestant principle of private judgment. The fourth century Catholic traditionalist upheld St. Athanasius in his defense of the faith that had been handed down. The Protestant uses his private judgment to justify a breach with the traditional faith. I remarked early on how appropriate it was that we should be reflecting together upon the life of St. Athanasius upon his feast day. It is even more appropriate that we should do so when we have the privilege, the blessing, the grace of having among us the bishop who, I am absolutely certain, will be seen by history as the Athanasius of our times. You compare yourself to Athanasius, Pope Paul VI once told him. The archbishop has never done this, but he certainly never will, and I know that it embarrasses him when the comparison is made. But reverend fathers, ladies and gentlemen, how can we not make this comparison? Archbishop Lefebvre is remaining true to the faith and traditions that were handed down to him, which, as a bishop, he swore to uphold and defend. And now, in country after country, in diocese after diocese, groups of faithful Catholics, inspired by his example, are finding the courage to do the same. Where would we be without the archbishop? But then how could he have achieved what, with the help of God, he has achieved without your support? He is an inspiration to you, but I know that you are an inspiration to him. When I say you, I am referring to the hundreds of thousands of traditional Catholics who support him in his works throughout the world. But I am speaking today especially of Queen of Angels Parish. I know that this parish is one for which he has a very special affection, and with good reason. I have seen the work of the society in a number of countries, but I have never seen anything which surpasses what you have here. I have heard that in Texas everything is bigger and better than everywhere else. Well, the people of Queen of Angels Parish have certainly done their part in upholding the reputation of the Lone Star State. And together with the parish, I must link the Angelus Press. And together with them both, I must link the name of Father Bolduc. Without Father Bolduc, there would be no Queen of Angels. Without Father Bolduc, there would be no Angelus Press. Without Father Bolduc, there would be no St. Mary's. I won't carry on. If I gave a list of all of the other that this priest has achieved in America, we would be here for hours. I can cannot think of any other individual in the U.S. who has done more to ensure that the traditional faith is kept alive, with the exception of Mr. Walter Matt and the valiant apostle he has conducted with his journal, The Remnant. That was Michael Davies talking about the state of the church in America and linking it to the crisis of the 4th century with St. Athanasius, Arius, and the rest of them, and linking it all of that to, well, his time with... Archbishop Lefebvre, and I guess we could now say, by extension, to our time with Archbishop Viganot, the, the legacy of Lefebvre, and the handful of better bishops who are actively trying to resist the most egregious errors of modernism coming out of Rome. But I'm curious what you think of all of this, so let me know in the comments what you thought of this. Like and subscribe if you, are, if you like this kind of content, and share this on social media, because that really does help. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.